Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Susie Bizance, who is the president of Favorite Daughter, Hervé Leger, Hudson, and Joe's Jeans. They're all part of Centric Brands, which recently opened a large office space in LA. I wanted to ask Susie how she's managed the return to work, plus how she's launched a brand and turned around three others during a pandemic. Welcome, Susie. Thank you, Jill. So happy to be with you. Happy to have you. I feel like my info is a bit outdated. We're not just talking four brands. We're talking more than that. How many are you overseeing? Are you working with? What's going on at Centric Brands? So as of about six months ago, um, we really strategically reorganized and we have three pillars, accessories, kids, and men's and women's apparel. So I'm the group president for men's and women's. And um, within that is Joe's and Hudson and Favorite Daughter based out in LA. Favorite Daughter being our digital first kind of startup. We're eight months in there and Joe's and Hudson are really, you know, long-term and um, successful premium denim brands. And then on the East Coast, Hervé Leger is also like a luxury dress business that has also had a good couple years and has terrific leadership in New York City. And we have recently acquired the license for sportswear for IZOD. So that's in the last couple months comes into the group. And I also am working closely within our platform with the Buffalo team, which has a terrific leadership team out of Montreal and um, is comprised of a very large and successful Buffalo denim business, as well as a new license with Caterpillar, really kind of entering into that workwear trend that we've seen some, you know, brands really grow and be quite successful with. So Caterpillar also comes into our group as well. So, so yes, six brands and growing. What are the similarities, commonalities between these brands? For instance, with IZOD, why was that an appealing brand for you? For me, and I haven't <laughs> checked it out in a while. It reminds me of, kind of plays into that very preppy, maybe tennis, golf. I, we're seeing that a lot on the fashion side. But um, yeah, is that is that happening? Was that a draw? Why, why IZOD? Well, I think, you know, just personally, I was really happy when I heard from our senior management team and our CEO, Jason Rabin, that IZOD was being looked at because I spent the first 15 years of my career in sport and specifically golf apparel. So I worked for Reebok and Adidas and I ran the Greg Norman brand as president and CEO from 2001 to 2008. And I grew up in the sport. Um, you know, my father was an entrepreneur in the golf industry, so I have a real love for golf. I enjoyed my time in the industry. So IZOD coming into the portfolio for me is just reminiscent of, of really nice professional and personal memories with the industry and people. Um, and one of the things that IZOD does um, is when we looked at our men's and women's portfolio back um, in Q4 of last year, we really had premium and luxury with Joe's and Hudson and Hervé. And then we had a great business with Buffalo as well that has, you know, different distribution, but where we were void within the platform was kind of in the space with a Kohl's and some, you know, Kohl's, Target, some of those retailers that we thought in mass and mid-tier that for us long-term to round out this men's and women's portfolio um, was really interesting. So IZOD has already a very strong business with some of those retailers. And, you know, we feel like we have something to add and on the product side as well. So we're fortunate we've been able to also bring over 
a terrific leader that has many years of experience running the Izon brand. His name is Jeff Barrett. And so we are able to bring on a great creative team and business team and sales team and merch that will run that brand for us. So not only are we bringing on a new, you know, larger business, you know, it's approximately 200 million in sales, but we're also bringing on a really experienced team that understands the DNA of the brand. So, so Izod represents a lot of things that we did not have in our men's and women's platform. The other thing is it really talks to sport and golf has had an amazing resurgence the last couple of years and especially with COVID. So it's, it's really fun to have it as part of the group. For sure. Well, because it speaks to your expertise and also maybe a white space in your portfolio, I'm wondering is you have this amazing past of being CEO of La Perla as well. Maybe we'll see some lingerie in the future <laughs> with the Centric Brands. Well, that would bring me full circle to have kind of touching all the categories that I've worked in in my career. Um, nothing is on the horizon in that space right now. Um, but I did enjoy my time at La Perla and it's always a brand that I just appreciate. And it really taught me a lot about luxury and D2C. Um, you know, really the store experience there was everything and that consumer is very discerning. Um, and the product, so much was put into that product and branding. So for me, I spent seven years with that organization and I really learned so much on the luxury side of the business. Yes. Well, tell me about this new office space in the sexy arts district of LA. <laughs> um, are all of the brands, do they all have a presence there? Are they all um, like sharing resources, working together in some way? Are they very separate? Is everyone back at the office? What's happening there? So we have three brands that are out here in Los Angeles, Joe's and Hudson, and that is wh where those brands were founded approximately 20 years ago. So it makes sense that those brands are here and there's so much in terms of product development that's in Los Angeles still um, for premium denim. So they are based here. And then uh, favorite Daughter with Sarah and Aaron Foster is also based here and primarily because they really drive that business um, strategically and creatively with our team. And so it was important to be where they are. So those are in L LA. And again, our Buffalo Caterpillar group is in Montreal and Hervé and Izod will be based in New York City in our centric heads headquarters in the Empire State Building. Um, but back to your question about our new Los Angeles space, which is on Jesse Street in the Arts District. It was a very conscious decision we made, um, again, maybe back in Q3 of last year. You know, 2020 was a difficult year for really anybody, I think, in consumer products, specifically in the premium space. And, you know, product is everything um, for Joe's and Hudson and for those teams and really for all of our brands. And we really needed to figure out what environment was going to make our team feel safe, but also feel like they could creatively collaborate and see and touch product. You know, denim is an interesting textile, and I've learned that this last five years, in that you can't just kind of feel or see a fabric and then understand what a garment is going to look like. It goes through so many steps in terms of wash processing all these different steps that changes how the garment really executes in the end in terms of the wash quality, in terms of the fit, you know, a lot of different elements. So it's really important that your creative people that touch product are able to actually touch and feel and be around the product. So, so we really looked at a space that would allow 
our team to feel safe and creative at the same time. So we rented a new building that's 28,000 square feet. It has 10 separate entrances and it's all one story. So you don't have the environment where you're going into an elevator, um, into a common smaller space. And with the 10 exits and entrances, teams of people can go into their specific part of the office. So the favorite daughter team has a space. Our wash developers have a space. Our, you know, um, photo studio has a space. Our e-commerce team has a space. And those actually have their own entrances and exits. The other thing it has is a lot of outdoor space for meetings. So we probably, you know, if 120 people work in the building any at any given time, we probably have space outside for 40 to 50 people to sit in different areas to do collaborative meetings. Fresh air, um, you know, just where people can feel safe, they can feel distanced. But if they are sharing and talking about product, they have that opportunity. So that was really kind of the genesis of the space. I loved that it was in a cool part of LA, of course, but most importantly to me was safety and creating a space that I think people will want to come back to. And then once they're in it, they feel like they can be indoors and outdoors, um, you know, and in a, in a really creative environment. Was this ideal building? This was already, the doors were there, the outdoor spaces were there. You did not have to convert it. This was just like this amazing find. It was. And I think, you know, a lot of businesses in 2020, you know, had a very difficult time. So there were bu- buildings that we looked at all over Los Angeles that had been built out, um, would, you know, work for a creative company. But, you know, we did look at quite a few before we saw this one. But when we did, we just knew that it was it was right. And I have to say that, you know, I think as you know, when you go back to March of last year, our company and, you know, corporation and certainly um, the leader of our company was very clear, you know, day one that our team's safety was number one. So I think when we were looking for an opportunity to get people back into an office environment in Los Angeles, and there was a building like this that provided that, it's very creative, very cool, very much a design lab but gave them the teams a little bit of separation and a lot of indoor-outdoor space. He was all in. So that was really great. Amazing. What is your work-from-home policy, I guess? Is it encouraged that you come to the office? Is it frowned upon if you're in another city? Well, I think, you know, we're, we're, we, I try not to frown upon anything. I mean, I think try to keep everybody really focused on and try to communicate quarterly around what our business goals are for each brand. And, you know, that's something I've done for years and years, you know, dating back to my time at Reebok. I think it's really important for every associate in the organization to really understand what we're striving for as a business and also on the product side, whether they work in product or not. So when I think about like coming back to the office, our company policy, corporate um, centric brands is we are returning into the office on um, the week of September 13th. And it is a three day a week with some flexibility for two days a week. So I think it, it hits this hits the chord of needing to be flexible, which I think we all agree is the way we need to move forward but it also brings people back into that environment. And I'm happy in Los Angeles where we can bring people back on those days. Again, you know, if somebody wants to sit outside and conduct their meetings outside, we actually have multiple spaces that accommodate meetings, you know, for up to 20 people. So I, I'm excited to see that all in play. 
we have throughout the pandemic had people, you know, aside from, um, you know, in LA when we were in our total shutdown mode, um, we have had people coming into the office because during that shutdown, you know, our des- there was a lot of stress put on our design team and our production team and our tech team because we had to keep the the ball moving. We're designing four seasons, designing and executing four seasons at any one time for each of our brands. So you know, in the, as as well as at Hervé and in New York, really all our brands are designers were often fitting garments in their living room. You know, our wash teams were working on products and samples, you know, again, in their living room or their basement or their garage or, you know, and I, I would just hear these stories and, and I was envisioning our team members having to homeschool their kids or take care of family members being at home. And then I'm just envisioning them having denim or dresses or whatever the product category is like overflowing in their living room. It just becomes very stressful. So I think getting people back on a part-time basis into an office environment where you can organize the samples and do fittings and do things that way, I think is really critical for Um, you know, people feeling like they have that space and they don't have work in their living room and that extra stress. But I also think it's important for the quality of the product that you're executing is some of those resources you need to have in that environment. So, so that is what our um, policy is. And so there will be flexibility with the three, two kind of schedule. And, and I think, each business will need some different things, right? On different days. And, and also depending on which area of the business you're in, you might be able to, you know, work remotely more. And then in some cases there might be a need to be in the office more, but I have to say, I feel fortunate in all our brands. We have really passionate design and production and tech and wash teams that really care about product so I don't think that I, and I think they're all excited to see each other and work with each other again. And so the few things we have done where we've gotten people together into in the different offices, um, there's definitely been this kind of feeling of like almost an exhale of like, it's so nice to see you and be with you again. Um, I think people are really missing that time. Totally. I feel like fashion is a unique beast. I keep hearing the same thing from brands time and time again, where we would maybe like to work from home, but you do need to see, touch, feel, uh, collaborate for sure. Wondering, uh, another brand told me that they were moving to fewer days at the office. Do you anticipate uh, you'll <laughs> it'll be a he- primarily heavily a Tuesday to Thursday work week? <laughs> I, I do think, I mean, I do think so, but I but I also think we have like really dedicated associates. So at times we may have a product meeting on a Friday. So, you know, each of the individual leads in those departments and my management team will kind of decide with their team, okay, listen, we have this, 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 this product or this event needs to get done by this date and we need to be flexible. So I think being flexible isn't just around now this flexible, like, work schedule of some days remote, some days in the office, but it's also flexibility by department saying, okay, let's get alignment on what are our goals and objectives? What do we need to accomplish? What are our financial goals? What are our business goals? What are our calendar goals? And then how do we back into that and make sure that we can achieve that? And I think, you know, 
I have a, you know, pretty senior management team in all of the businesses and they, we all kind of have that common understanding that we're going to do what's right for the business. And as long as the business goals are met and our our targets are met, um, you know, there is a lot of flexibility there. Yes. Tell me about launching Favorite Daughter in December. Erin and Sarah Foster, love them. <laughs> but you would think, I mean, some IRL events would would help to kind of push that along. What was the challenge of getting off a gra- an event, an event, a brand off the ground um, at that time? Well, it's so interesting. We collaborated with Sarah and Erin um, on a Joe's capsule, probably a year, started it a year and a half ago. And we just thought they just had so much to offer. They are so talented. They are so creative. They're so witty. Their followers just um, really admire them, enjoy them. They find them real and authentic. So there was just so much there that we felt like after we did the collaboration with them, we thought this, this just can't be it. There's more here. So we pitched them and worked with them on, you know, can we work with you as as really like a joint venture and build out this favorite daughter brand that and really how do we become the organization behind Sarah and Aaron to let them kind of fulfill their vision for their brand so we started on that process we couldn't have been more excited i feel like they were very enthusiastic as well and then a few months later as we're you know, getting ready to stand up this new brand um, and also a digital first brand, which for me was really important because, you know, I have, a, I'm managing a large portfolio of business now and a lot of them are more wholesale focused businesses. And we do have a good D2C business and we do have a retail business in premium denim, but, and also at Hervé, but I felt like we had also a lot to learn around how do we really grow and ramp a digital first brand. So I thought there was a lot of learnings we would have as an organization and centric generally by doing this favorite daughter um, project with them. But right away we encountered, you know, COVID in March and we were probably only a few months into it. And I think, you know, as a corporation, we went through a lot. We were taken private in 2020. We are now a portfolio division of Blackstone. You know, our company changed a lot. We were, our strategies, you know, adjusted slightly. We we turned into those three big pillars. We want to stay focused on that. And I really, um, you know, was happy to have the support of, of corporate leadership that I was able to keep the Favorite Daughter Project moving along. So we you know, really kind of tucked it in through the pandemic and we just kept moving and we didn't give up on it. I felt like it was too important of a concept. There was too much we needed to learn and grow from doing a digital first project. Um, and I just feel like the brand had so much potential that we couldn't let this moment in time that I think we thought might be three to six months. I don't think any of us envisioned that we would you know, this would be 18 months and we still would be wearing masks. Um, but it was a concept and a business that we just didn't want to give up on. So we have, you know, pushed it forward full force. Um, but it was a little challenging. Yeah. And, and we launched it in November. So we're eight months in. And sometimes I we remind, have to remind ourselves of that because, you know, Launching a brand is not not easy, right? And there's so many learnings that happen. And a lot of the brands that we admire and look at in this space, you know, they've been in business for eight to 10 years. So there's still a lot that we're doing to find the right exact stride. Um, but it has really exceeded our expectations and opened so many doors. And, 
you know, already we've done, you know, you think about it, a brand that's eight months old, we've already done an amazing collaboration with Roxanne Ossoline, which was so fun um, with the bracelets. And, you know, we've also done a collaboration with Jen Meyer, the jewel, jeweler. So, and those are things where, you know, Sarah and Aaron have wonderful relationships and a lot of doors are opened and there's just, I feel like unlimited possibilities. So we continue to look at collaborations going forward with that brand um, and also expanding the categories. Well, it's a digital first brand, as you said, your first within the portfolio. What are some of the learnings that are, I mean, eight months in, um, but are you finding some maybe marketing levers or some, I don't know, what's working to acquire customers? What are you finding that's maybe unique to um, a digitally native brand? Well, I mean, I think one of my our instincts in the beginning with them is was to make sure that it was and is really driven by their creativity and their authenticity, right? So it's really not us saying to them, to Sarah and Aaron, like, this is what we think we should do. It's really us trying to put the resources behind them and let their instincts guide this brand. Um, so I think that that has really served us well. And when they are passionate about the products they create, it really translates. And one of the things we really loved about them too, is they have this very strong, you know, background in history and investing in female led brands, which we really admire. And I think, you know, what females and women admire generally, and then they have this very strong peer group of friends that all really support each other. So those two elements I think have been really helpful and, um, you know, driven our success. I mean, if you think about last week, we had a great launch event on the East Coast. So that we've primarily been, you know, quite active on the West Coast, but we wanted to do something to introduce the brand to the East Coast. And, you know, just really amazing women that were able to co-host the launch event, Amy Griffin, you know, she has her company G9 Ventures and, and again, a very um, good friend of Sarah and Aaron. And we also, Kelly Sawyer, who's co-CEO of Baby to Baby, just like wonderful women who are really doing something to take that like business and agenda of females in business forward. So, you know, we love their associations and we love, um, we love how that can impact Favorite Daughter and take it forward. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Tell me about this Hamptons tour you were just on. It was a launch event, come and celebrate. And what else? You had a couple of other events happening in the last week or so. What was going on? Well, we did actually a um, second consumer event, which was lovely as well at Five Story, which is a really, you know, special retailer that's on Madison Avenue in New York City, as well as in Southampton. So it was a great venue for us. Um, to kind of show the actual product in a retail environment um, in Southampton. So that was wonderful. Um, and then a few weeks before that, we did a great event for Joe's. With Joe's, we have our tw- we're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. So we have a 20th anniversary capsule and we're doing some different celebrations. Um, and we did a great event at Moby's in East Hampton which um, was wonderful. And we had 12 influencers join us. And it was really nice to see that. And what was really interesting too, is we had the influence really pick their influencers, pick the product that they wanted to wear from Joe's. And so it was really fun for me to see as the, you know, as the brand president, 
you know, how 12 different influencers who have their own following and their own personal styles, like which products of Joe's did they pick? How did they style it? All of that was really fun for me. And then just watching them have a great um, evening together. So Moby's was a great venue for that. Um, and then we're planning some things um, actually also to celebrate our 20th anniversary of Joe's in both Austin and Nashville. We love this kind of micro influencer or in some of, you know, different cities and taking some of our celebration outside of New York and LA to some of the other cities that really have supported the brand. Um, yeah. And I think one of the things we've also learned from the successful collaborations we've had at Joe's over the years, I mean, we've collaborated with Danielle Bernstein, Julian Edelman, um, Stephanie Gottlieb, who's a high-end jeweler, some really like really interesting cross-section of influencers who brought new consumers and eyes to our brand of Joe's. We're kind of taking that model and also looking at Hudson right now. And we have two collaborations that are on their horizon that we're really excited about, um, Brandon Williams and also Zoe Costello. So I think those will be wonderful for Hudson, as well as we just, um, started working with Tyler Hero, who is an NBA player in the, at the Miami Heat. And he also is designing and collaborating with us on some products for Hudson. So, so culture and sport and bringing maybe some influencers and stylists into the, a brand like Hudson that also just came into our portfolio about a year ago um, is really kind of exciting. And I think it's something around taking our learnings from Joe's and applying when you asked about like what's worked in marketing, like taking yeah. some of those learnings and applying them to some of the other brands in the portfolio. Yes. Well, I know Danielle from We Were What. I remember mm -hmm. that collaboration. And yeah. I feel as though potentially, I'm not sure if you guys are working together or if she maybe saw that as a trial ground before she launched her own denim line. Um, would uh, Are you also kind of trialing these influencers? Um, like you said, you brought Aaron and Sarah into the fold. If something takes off, do you think that you, um, a brand by that influencer, um, brand it with their name, could be in in the cards for, for centric brands? I think it can. And I think for Sarah and Aaron and working on Favorite Daughter, it's also about building a platform where we can do this, um, you know, in special circumstances. Again, it's it's not for every influencer and, and some collaborations are meant to be just that, a collaboration. But, you know, there are going to be times where we are going to find talent that we think, um, you know, it warrants their own business. So, this Sarah and Aaron project for us and brand building opportunity and just doing a joint venture with them really also is helping us build a platform so we can do that, you know, for others. And it is interesting. You have to strike the right balance of operational support, logistics support, um, strategic support. But I think you can't lose and water down the authenticity of who you're collaborating with. And I think that's, and I think that's harder to do than people think. And for us, it's something that I almost feel like is my first priority in, in, in running this business. So, um, I think we're getting a great experience and great traction and sales are growing and we are, it is digital first, but we are doing um, a bit of wholesale as well. And I think we're doing things because we want to grow the brand, so we're making conscious decisions, not just for top line sales, but we're really taking a long term approach to these brands. Um, and I think that's important because it is their brand as well. And making sure that when we think about other distribute, we think about distribution very carefully. 
And um, I think there has to be also a reason from a brand standpoint to be in, in distribution outside of our own owned website. Yes. Is it a unique strategy across the board in terms of the DTC versus wholesale conversation? Do different brands warrant more channels? Um, are you streamlining the number of channels across the board? It is really, it really depends by brand, right? So I think each brand, you have to look at the total potential, you know, and, and there are some factors when you look at, um, you know, when you look at really pushing e-commerce or more of a D2C element, I think you want to make sure you're working with a brand that has the right AUR and margin structure, because there's a lot of hidden costs, as we all know, in being, you know, an e-commerce or digital first brand. So there's the digital marketing costs, the fulfillment costs, logistics, all of that supply chain. So you have to make sure that you have really the margin room to create what is a long-term profitable entity. So it, it really varies by brand. You know, I have, I, I've always had an e-commerce and a retail element in my roles the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. So I'm very comfortable blending all three and making sure you're making the right decisions that supplement, you know, what is the right brand strategy. And, and, and in general, I've had to rebuild brands in, in the last few opportunities I've had. So retail usually plays a big part of that because there's such, it's such a rare opportunity for people to walk into an environment and really touch and feel the brand. Um, I was listening actually to one of your podcasts a while ago from the founder of Aviator Nation you know, and she made a really good point. And I think she's also run that brand in a really authentic way that I admire. But, you know, she looks at retail stores as that. So, you know, while, you know, we we do use a blend of traditional marketing as well as, of course, digital marketing and kind of, you know, the influencer piece as well as, um, you know, digital marketing. But um, we believe in things like outdoor, but I also believe in what the power is of a store and I believe that experience. And I think that, you know, e-commerce continues to ramp in terms of macro and our own brand trends. It's growing, you know, it's very, very, we're seeing very healthy growth, but I think to sustain that long-term, you need to give people like a taste of your brand in person. And I think you see that because so many of the digital first brands that you've talked about, Jill, and and really know so well, whether it's an Allbirds or some of these brands, they're also coming to say, you know what, there is a place, a time and place to give people a great store experience. Yes. Why limit yourself? <laughs> no, you- I agree. Mm-hmm. Why limit? Yeah. And the other, the other thing is customer acquisition. I, I think we can't underestimate the importance of physical retail for customer acquisition. And I think those costs continue to ramp. Um, so as we run these brands, I think you have to look at wholesale and retail stores, not just on their four wall or vertical P&Ls, but also on what is the customer acquisition opportunity. Well, you, you've had a no fear attitude in terms of the office going, opening an office now, um, is now the time when there are deals to be had to invest in more physical space, really expand that footprint? Um, yes. I mean, we are definitely looking at that. I mean, having run stores for most of my career, a retail element, um, I am very aware of, um, you know, it's all about having the right opportunity and a good lease. 
So, you know, there's, you can control the brand, you can control the quality of the product, but you also need to make sure the economics of the real estate you choose is something that, that works for the brand. So yes, if it's the right opportunity, and again, I really believe in brand enhancing locations, it's important to have the right brand adjacency. I think you really kind of, the other thing is we are going through a shift in where people shop. I think, you know, as you think about some of the traditional cities that really owned that retail uh, market, you know, you're definitely seeing shifts of people moving state to state and then also into some more rural or suburban markets. Um, I think whether a mall is indoors or outdoors, I mean, I think there's like a lot of factors to look at, um, to think about when you're looking for a new lease. And and we are doing some different things. Like we just signed a lease on Beverly Drive in Los Angeles, and we are going to do a we want to do something really out of the box for favorite daughter, more of like an activation space for, you know, three or four months, like a pop-up. And then we will, you know, work to convert that to a permanent location. But I think there's opportunities where we may not always pick a physical space or store and just turn it into one traditional store. It might be something that rotates brand to brand. It might give us a pop-up opportunity to test a market and then convert it to another brand. Um, you know, so, and I'm, I'm doing that with an outlet actually that we have right now and we're converting it to another brand that has really been performing quite well within the portfolio. So I look at that as an opportunity. I look at, I look at it as customer acquisition, branding, marketing, but also sales growth. So I look at it, I look at them as a combination of all those factors in deciding, but I think, I think this is a good time. Yes. Do you ever see outside of um, retail, other opportunities to, I guess, share resources in terms of like, I'm seeing other um, co- large companies with several brands in their portfolio. Maybe they're launching a loyalty program that applies to all brands. Anything like that for your brands to, do they have unique customers or are they shared? Would that help be helpful for you? Sure. Well, I don't know that it's always um, on the customer side, but for sure on the resource and organizational side. So one of the things as I'm the group president for the men's and women's apparel brands within Centric that I kind of think about every day is like, how can we add value as a platform, right? We want to make sure we don't get in the way of the brand growth and we don't want to impact the brand DNA, but we want to make sure that we can add value. So so one of the things with Joe's and Hudson, for example, is both are based in Los Angeles. The design teams and the creative teams and marketing is very separate, right? We don't, we don't want those brand DNAs at all to slide together. But then there might be legal HR and finance behind the scenes that really can be a shared resource. So that would be an example of where we would share some resources. One area we also at the platform level is a shared resource is our e-commerce um, and digital effort. So that now we now have five of our brands on one tech stack for the first time in the last, I don't know, five years and really anchored with Shopify. And that's really a first. So then we can really bring in experts on page search or, you know, different parts of you know, e-commerce, we, and they can work over five brands, but really you can get like best in class talent. So we are creating that one group, you know, that works under Jennifer Hawkins. You featured also on one of your 
podcast, but is under her leadership. And then you can really leverage really great um, expertise across, you know, four or five brands. So that's one area where we're really doing that. And we're seeing some great growth. I mean, we've seen for Joe's and Hudson, paid search has been amazing this year. Um, you know, we've really, and we're also looking at loyalty. So we are going to have loyalty by the end of the year, and we can now roll that out across all of those brands within one group. So there's a way to take, you know, look at that best in class technology and make sure that we're applying it to the group and, and doing that through, um, you know, through her organization, um, yeah. And I, I think also when you asked earlier a little bit about marketing and, and I do think we, we believe that consumer experience is marketing. Right. And I think this consumer really expects like ease of use. They want to be met where they want to meet you as a brand. Right. And they want to transact in the way. So that means being flexible with our payment methods, right. Having Amazon yes. pay and Apple pay and you know, um, you know, pay over time and making sure we have all of those different things. And another thing that, you know, making sure that your return, we have return late. So making sure that that is a seamless experience, you know, so I think sometimes when we think about marketing, we think about those, you know, traditional marketing or digital marketing. But I also think when you think about customer and customer retention, we need to make sure that we create the most frictionless experience online as we possibly can. So that is where we're experience is marketing. That is the title of this podcast. I love that. That's so smart. It really is. Um, And you need people that really understand that part of the business and understand that technology, right? So it's important. So for me, I feel like I have a really great team in place that is looking at all those things and bringing all those things together. And I think it's a a strategic advantage because we can leverage it across the brands. For sure. Well, getting through the last 18 months has been, I guess, a feat, a huge major, I mean, to say challenge is an understatement. What can you tell me about the challenges you're facing now? Are you dealing with all the supply chain issues, the the price spikes because of, yeah, supply? What's 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 weighing on your mind, keeping you up at night? Oh my gosh. Well, there, the, the list is certainly more than one thing. Um, I think at, from a business standpoint, the most challenging, um, you know, obstacle that we're dealing with right now across all the brands is a logistics and supply chain, right? So just getting product here is, you know, a challenge. And again, maybe something that we didn't necessarily see was coming or wouldn't have been on our radar at this level pre-COVID, so it's just, you know, one more learning of, you know, and it's also, it really changes how you think about running a business. I mean, diversity, agility, flexibility, you know, all those kinds of things to me are things we have to think about in our corporate strategy um, because, you know, we've just seen a year and a half of, of really curveballs thrown our way that we probably wouldn't, wouldn't have been on our top 10 concern list if you, you know, interviewed us two and a half years ago. So Logistics and supply chain has definitely been a challenge. You know, cost of goods is also really, really difficult. Um, prices are going up, and I think we see that in, you know, a macro way in our environment and our, you know, in our economy. And um, you're just seeing it in our cost of goods. So it's making sure that each of your products look and feel you know, like they're worth the price that you're charging. Um, and that that's also another interesting reason that we 
liked this digital first strategy because I do think you can deliver even heightened um, product quality to your consumer. Right. And I think that there's, you know, one step out of the mix and we've really tried to over deliver quality. And when you're working on that kind of direct margin structure, you're able to do that as well. So I do think that with price escalations that it gets more challenging from a margin structure going forward. So that's definitely a challenge. I, I think one of the things that is most worrisome to me too, is just the impact that the last year and a half has had on so many people. And I think being in tune to how, how I can make sure that our company, our brands, the brands I'm managing are places that, that our, our employees and our associates want to work. It's so important to me. And I think things have really changed for people, so many people, right? And people have had to care for children and homeschooling and loved ones and have had sick relatives and, you know, may have, you know, you know, not been well themselves. I mean, there's just, I think has been a lot of change. Um, And I think just, you know, the physical and mental health of our teammates and our employees and making sure that we're thinking through that and being a good environment for people to work in. Um, and I think that's how you garner discretionary effort is, you know, and I think that in now a remote, partially remote or all remote, I mean, in that kind of an economy or work scenario, you need to make sure that you have your teammates discretionary effort, right? And so I think if they, you know, for me, it's just making sure that people know that we care about them. And we care about that part of their life. And, you know, making sure that we can allow people to have that right work life balance, um, and generally feel healthy. Right. So, um, so I think that that is something that I think about daily. And I think people are now going back getting their kids back in school and, you know, balancing this. So, and people have learned to work remotely and now we're shifting back to like, you know, in the office as well. So, you know, how do you make sure that they have the equipment in both places or, you know, that that commute time doesn't translate into lost work time? You know, what other flexibility, what other flexibility do we need to be thinking about there? So, um, so I think that that is really important to me is that our teammates know that we care about their safety. We create an environment people want to be in and want to come to work in and that we garner that discretionary effort. And, you know, they know that maybe when we're not, we're not there, we're not with each other. We care about how I care and we care about how they're doing. And then in turn, I think they'll care about the company, right? And the piece of a piece of their role that impacts the whole company. And, and I think that's what, um, I think that's, what's going to be really important over the next couple of years. Is a lot of that just checking in more often, uh, one-on-one, how are you doing? Is it more than that? You know, it's funny because we, one thing that's happened in this last year and a half is we've all become very overwhelmed with so many teams or zoom meetings, right? So I feel like there's a lot of fatigue, but there's just, it's created a really long day, right? And not a lot of time for spontaneous conversations. So so one of the things I personally miss is when I was in the office and I could get a cup of coffee and I could just stop and talk to my like finance partner or I could be like, oh gosh, I wore those jeans this weekend. I love them. Or, you know, these are running a little bit short. So 
you know, can we just check these and maybe just check and pull some from the warehouse and make sure just commentary that's very informal, but productive. Um, so I think that that is one of the things that, um, you know, I was trying to put like one-on-one meetings into the calendar as well. And I, and I think it really added to having almost too many set meetings every half an hour. So I, I, what I like to think of is that just that I'm available and the same way. And I think it's the culture I've always had, which is my door is open. People come in and talk to me just, you know, with an idea, with, you know, something they want to share, something they think is a problem that we need to solve, something that's an idea that we can need to capitalize on and trying to have more time in our day for that spontaneous interaction. Somebody wants to call me on their cell phone. If they want to call me on Teams, I'm here. Um, trying to create more of that. Because truthfully, when you, for me, if I'm running six brands, how do you, how do you have one-on-ones with everybody? And my whole day would be gone with that, right? And then I wouldn't have time to, and, and really I need to be also customer and client facing. I, I, so much enjoy being out in stores. I mean, the last couple of months I've taken trips to Dallas. I've been to New York three times. I love that I'm getting back into our, you know, our wholesale customers like stores and seeing what's going on and can marry up all the data and the sell-throughs I'm seeing with actually what their floors look like. And so I'm liking all of that. And I think we all need to have time for that and to get back out and do some of that and connect you know, so, so I think, you know, not scheduling just one-on-ones, but trying to be a person who's accessible, who's curious, who wants to know what's going on. And people perceive me as, you know, open to taking a phone call or an email note or things like that. I mean, I think that's what's important to me and, and have, we have quarterly town halls and, and I try to like, make sure I'm sharing with my whole team across all the brands you know, what our expectations are, how are we trending against our goals? We try to make sure we're acknowledging outstanding employee performance and making sure that, you know, I'm expressing my gratitude um, for, you know, really what everybody has gone above and beyond to make sure that all these companies could move forward successfully through the pandemic. So, yeah, so we do that. And, and, and my hope is that that creates an aura where people know that um, I also want their feedback back as well. For sure. Well, Susie, I tell you what, this has been so in-depth and so amazing. I don't want to end this conversation. But last, qu- last question. Yes. You mentioned goals, where you, are with, uh, where you are with your goals in the year. What are you looking forward to this year? What are you, your 2021? Do you want to end it? up to 2019 numbers? What are you projecting? What can you tell me about how we're going to end 2021? I think for all of our businesses, you know, the goal and what we've talked about is, is really trying to meet those 2019 numbers, you know, and get, you know, back to that spot. And in several cases, we're there or maybe even a little better. Um, and with all the businesses, we're very close so I think that is really, and then, and then in a way, you know, we've taken this year and a half to become more efficient, right? So we've, you know, worked on some of those shared resources and different things behind the, the brand. So I think improving that, you know, total EBITDA performance, being more efficient, yes, getting back to 19, but I think it really, it, it does vary by brand. 
launching a digital first brand and making sure that it is successful and that we have a plat- platform to build off of. Favorite daughter, um, I think that's important as well. Taking on a brand like Izod that is really, you know, a pretty robust and strong brand and has great, you know, has really good distribution um, with some key retailers and making sure we don't let them down. I think that's really important. So we're bringing that business on board. Um, and then for us, it'll be looking for the right opportunities. Now that we have several brands, you know, a business that's almost doubled over the last year, if you think about it. Um, so with all those brands, you know, the total business is well over 600 million. So we need to look for the right strategic opportunities to supplement what we're doing this men's and women's platform. But I mean, I think what is most important to end the year too, is that we're retaining our top talent. And um, like I said, making sure with all the changes with, you know, the COVID has changed our working environment and what we're doing. I think it's really important to make sure that, you know, we're all staying in tune to how our associates and our teams feel and make sure that, um, you know, we are retaining our top talent. Susie, we need to do more with you. This has been so great. Thank you for being here. No, of course. It's wonderful to be part of what you do. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to The Glossy Podcast. See you next week.